as you saw up on the screen, I think it's still up there, John 8, verses 31 to 47. So if you would turn there and get ready, and we'll look at that in just a moment. If you'd imagine with me for a minute, suppose you are a medical professional. In fact, you're a physician. You've completed your four years of undergraduate training, college, and you went on to med school, you went on to your residency, then you even did a lengthy fellowship, longer than usual. So from the time you first entered college, you're looking back on 15 years. You've been working another 25 years at an award-winning hospital where you're the chair of your department. You've published numerous articles in medical journals and you're a noted conference speaker. Many of the men you play golf with are doing the same things in other medical fields. You are the experts. One day, a man in blue jeans and a t-shirt walks onto the hospital floor unannounced and he begins checking in on the patients. He goes to the nurse's station unannounced And he picks up a patient's chart. After a moment's reading, he goes to the patient's room. As you follow him in, you you see him drop the chart in the garbage. You hear muffled conversation, and you see the patient crying loudly. But there are tears of joy. That's really weird. The visitor turns around towards you, and he, he tells you that you should listen carefully to his words if you wish to live too. He says, as for your patient, you did well in observing his symptoms, but your diagnosis is completely wrong. In fact, the medications and the treatments you have prescribed will result in certain death for this patient. With kindness in his eyes, he sadly but directly tells you that as a result of your care, this patient now has only moments to live. You can feel your blood pressure rising in anger, and you ask him on what authority he can make such statements. He tells you that the authority he has comes from the same place you claim yours comes from. Now, you don't have to be a doctor or have reached such a prestigious level of excellence as that of the main character I just described. But on some level, every one of us can relate to the anger and the hurt pride this doctor felt. Because whether you're a business owner, a a hairstylist, a truck driver, a home health aide, a student, even a pastor. We all live in the real world. We all have the opportunity to work hard in whatever we do. And at the end of the day, what do we want? We want some praise from others for what we've done. I even like to be commended by my wife for taking out the garbage. Just how it is. But even if you've only seen a hard day's work on TV, I can guarantee you still don't like to be told you're wrong even when you are wrong. So the question that shouts out to us from this text today is this. What authority do you recognize? Is it your own? Or is it the authority of Jesus, the Son of God? In this hard text, Jesus makes it perfectly clear that your willingness to submit to Jesus' authority, or your lack of willingness, demonstrates who you can legitimately call Father. It demonstrates what family you belong to and whose children you actually are. If you are able, would you stand now for the reading of God's living word? 
John 8, 31 to 47. And keeping in mind with this, this text is from an exchange between Jesus and certain Jewish leaders. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me, because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you're determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. And listen to what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. You may be seated. Now, a couple thousand years have passed since Jesus' day, but people's hearts haven't changed in the least. But hurt pride isn't the only theme in our text. We're talking about a place in the family, or maybe a space in the family. The real crux of the issue that the Jews had with Jesus was not the claim that he was the Messiah, the Deliverer. I'm sure it was for some. But the real issue was that he claimed to be equal with God. They saw his miracles, right? They couldn't deny that he held incredible power, but the way he talked made it seem like he was saying he knew God more than a human being could know God. Listen to some of what he'd been saying. I have come down from heaven. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Wow. He said, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. And he said, the Father sent me. The Father has taught me. And he said to a woman plainly caught in sin, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. This account, it has a progression. It has a tension that builds. The scene starts out on a fairly good level. 
there's four stages. Imagine, imagine a staircase, okay? Walking on the, on, on the level, and here comes a staircase. And they're walking down it. On the first step down is where we're at, okay? The first step, there's four steps. They start out on the first step, and here it is. Some of the Jews believed in Jesus. That's a good place to start. Verse 31. The word which is translated believed is the same word found in Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe, there it is, in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, but they did not have the same belief needed for salvation. Here's why. The word is the same, but wait, the idea isn't the same. If we're comparing the Jews that believed with the verse in Romans, it can't be the same sense exactly because... They weren't believing yet that God had raised him from the dead. Jesus hadn't died yet, okay? And we can see from our passage, they weren't confessing him to be Lord of their lives with their mouths. But this use of the word shows they believed from the heart there was something divine in the power Jesus had access to. Their, their belief was based on the fact that he did undeniable works and miracles. He had power from God, but not that he was God. If somehow they were believing He was God in the flesh, they just hadn't allowed that truth to really sink into their lives. It didn't lay any kind of claim on their lives. It was, it was the beginning of faith. If you hold to my teaching, He said, they'll really be disciples. The word is actually has the sense of remain, continue, persist. It's really the difference between holding and holding on for dear life. And when I thought about this idea of holding on, I had something funny pop in my head. It was, it was Wiley Coyote. All right? When Wiley Coyote, he's chasing Roadrunner. Roadrunner, what does he do? He always tricks him. At the last moment, he takes a sharp turn. Wiley Coyote goes shooting off the cliff out into open space. <clears throat> and of course, he doesn't plummet all the way to the bottom. He hangs out for a minute, maybe runs in the air for about 30 seconds. <clears throat> something like that. And as long as he looks down and he sees a branch below him, he's going to grab hold of that branch, that little measly thing sticking out of the side of the cliff, right? He's going to grab hold of that branch. He's going to be pretty happy about it. But that only lasts a few seconds, right? He literally has in his hands the means to be saved, but as long as he lets go and lands at the bottom, it's not going to help him out, is it? And then what happens next? Something's going to land on his head. Probably an anvil, because there's always one of those anvils in the desert. Always. So, we're talking about the need to persist, continue hanging on. When you live in the same house for a number of years, do you find that over time you you have more and more space? In that house? <laughs> or less and less? Show of hands. Who has more and more space? No, no one. If you just build on, that doesn't count. Okay. You have less and less space. I'm going to tell you about a storage shed we once had. I built this shed. It was 14 by 14. Plenty of room for all my stuff. I had a, it was actually 16 foot high on, on the one, 16 feet high on the one side. A nice big cargo door over here, 
<clears throat> I could put the snowblower, lawnmower, all those things in. Over here, it had a little access door. I could walk in. And in the middle, I had this, I had this workbench right down the middle. So I could walk in that little access door, turn around, and right there I could work on, on the workbench, in theory. <laughs> and it was just the way I wanted it. It was customized, and it was plenty high. I could hang boats or you know, other things like that up on the top and the high part. And then I had, uh, I had a climbing wall over here on that high wall, so I could have some fun work on my climbing technique. But as time went by, I was building houses at the time, and I could bring home scraps from the job site, whatever was going to be thrown in the dumpster. So good sheets of plywood, you know, three-quarters of a sheet. Um, we were working on our house, so it, it worked out. I could bring things home from time to time. And I would stack them up against the climbing wall, okay? And, and up top, it didn't matter. It was away from my head area. But down on the floor, it started working its way more and more into where I need to walk in. <clears throat> and pretty soon, when I wanted to walk in, I had to tiptoe to get to anything in the back. I had to, I had to step, open the door and step like, kind of like this and get to the next spot where I could reach the floor. My space was shrinking. It wasn't good. And eventually I cleared it all out and I was amazed at how much room I had in that thing. I cleared everything out of there and I had a really nice working space but it was because we had to move, and so I had no time left to enjoy that space. You only have room for so many things. Hold on to what counts. These people were getting fired up. Jesus told them they wanted to kill Him because they had no room for His Word. Just like I had no more room left in my storage shed. It's a really sad thing when someone gets to that place. Why was there no room for His Word? How do you get there? It's real easy. Just do nothing. Do nothing at all. Soon, sin will crowd out the things you really need to have in that place. Do nothing and the stuff of life will work its way into your home, into your schedule, and into your family time. They had no room for His Word. The first step, some of the Jews believed in Jesus. Going down. Second step, they insisted that they never were slaves. I think they had never before been confronted with this concept so directly. Remember, attention is building here. They speak strong words of disagreement. We've never been slaves of anyone. They summarize that their entire ethnic history has been a history of freedom. All the way back. In this moment, they're forgetting about the 430 years of slavery they experienced in Egypt. As real as slavery gets. They're forgetting about all the hard oppression they experienced through the time of the judges. Another 350 years, roughly. Oppression by the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Midianites. They're forgetting about the big one. In Babylon, the Babylonians came and burnt the temple, ransacked the city, killed, and took them all away to exile. And then they spent 70 years in exile. They're forgetting about that. 
They never were slaves. So they said. Spiritually, the Jews were thinking they were free from condemnation by their religious practice. But Jesus is seeing them as slaves because of their religious practice. They're defining freedom very differently. And their freedom is actually sin. Jesus is calling them on it. So he redirects their thinking. Verse 34. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. In my family, we have um, scripture memory verses that we're always working on, trying to refine. And then... And you learn the reference with those. And then we also have nuggets of Jesus. And those are just uh, start, start the sentence of Jesus and finish it. You don't have to remember the, the verse. Just things to hold on to. Like this one. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Pretty easy to remember. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, teach it to your children. Teach it to yourself. D.A. Carson has said, Not only does the presence of sin hold a person in slavery, but the practice of sin actively enslaves. I think Jesus said it better, but it's another way of of viewing that same idea. When you're a slave, your greatest need is the need to become free. So Jesus says, verse 36, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now Jesus declares that He is the one with authority, the one who has the power, the power of God, to set free from sin and death. This is why Jesus reads the prophecy of Isaiah in the synagogue. Here's how it works. The visiting rabbi comes in to the synagogue, the local synagogue. An attendant goes over here, grabs from the bucket of scrolls, okay, whatever they called it, grabs a scroll and hands it to the visiting rabbi. The visiting rabbi opens it up, and he reads from the scroll. And Jesus reads the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Then he would roll roll the scroll back up, hand it to the attendant, and he would sit down. And he would sit down, and that's, what, that's when he started to teach and interpret what he had just read. So Jesus does that. He rolls up the scroll, and he sits down in front of them to interpret what he just read. And here's how he interprets it. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, that's about me. I'm the one who's come to do that, to bring freedom to you, to throw off your chains. What I just read was all about me. Jesus is the one who throws off chains. They think they're Abraham's sons, children of God. Jesus says they are slaves. A slave has no permanent place in the family. But a son belongs to it forever. If they would be sons of Jesus, they could know real freedom. (coughs) Excuse me. By verse 40, they're determined to kill him. The one who told them the truth. Truth that he heard from God. Now Jesus, what he's doing here is he's functioning as a prophet. Because what was the job of a prophet? Speak God's words. Speak true words of God. Jesus tells the truth from God. Now they make a point of saying, we are not illegitimate children. When they say this, it's very possible 
We can't say for sure, but it looks like it's very possible that the Jews are hinting at the fact that Jesus has a questionable history when it comes to his birth. We don't know how much talk went on about the news that Mary was pregnant while she was still engaged. We don't know how much God softened the street talk, how many whispers behind the back he decided Mary and Joseph would have to hear, even though they were pure in their relationship, as Scripture makes clear. They obediently submitted to the instruction to stay together and bring forth the Son of God, regardless of what rumors would fly. It's possible the Jews were hinting at that while proudly reporting that their own parentage was certain. The idea of accusation there comes out more forcefully in verse 48 when their anger is really rising. They call him a Samaritan. Meaning not just from that despised northern region, but from that place of mixed blood. Not pure Jews, but half-Jews. What's really silly is how these particular Jewish men viewed themselves. They were so proud that their heritage was a line of descent from Abraham through Isaac and not through Ishmael. That it was through Jacob and not through Esau and the Edomites. That their lineage was through the tribe of Judah, not through the Samaritans. No, sir, they were Abraham's children as pure as it gets in their minds. Here's the silly part. Do any of us have anything at all to do with our family line? Do we pick who our parents are going to be? Can you pick what kind of body you have? Can you choose to have naturally curly hair? No, cannot. Does it make any sense at all to boast over someone else because you grow up as an American? Speaking English, they were ruled by their pride. At verse 41, these Jews have made a distinction between God the Father and Jesus. Not in the sense that we do, as in two of the three different persons of the Trinity. But they made a distinction by saying Jesus is just a man and God is someone else. Third step down. Their weak faith turns to unbelief. This isn't good. We're going downstairs. We're not going upstairs. Their weak faith turns to unbelief. They reject Jesus as God. Now, where exactly this happens is difficult to say in the passage, but I think it happens by verse 43, because Jesus gives evidence of it by his words when he says their ears are stopped. They're unable to hear, and they want to carry out the devil's will. Verse 42 and 43, If God were your Father, you would love me, Jesus says. For I came from God, and now I'm here. Jesus reasserts that God is not their Father. They had started to believe, but now they've hardened their hearts. They are graciously having face time with the Son of God. But the more Jesus explains the state of their hearts, the more they dig in and they harden themselves. So I think this is the decisive moment in their eternal lives. They have chosen to reject Jesus. Now on the surface as we read this, this account could really sound like Jesus is throwing this thing in their face or that he's insulting them, that he's not very kind about this. 
saying that God is not their father. But the more I read this text and spend time in it, it seems more and more plain to me Jesus is giving them multiple opportunities to acknowledge Him as the Son of God. Because He's graciously allowing for two-way dialogue. He's there in conversation with them. Each time He speaks, they get one more chance to turn to Him. Like in Hosea 11.1. Hosea, through the Lord, says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. Jesus is calling them out of bondage like He did when He brought Israel out of Egypt. He's so filled with love for them. Israel is still His beloved son. But even as He does this, they're not cut to the heart. They don't cry out with a conviction of sin. What shall we do? They don't say, I do believe, but help my unbelief. No, they harden their hearts. Verse 44 says that The devil was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. Remember that first verse we read, verse 31? Those who hold to Jesus hold to truth and are genuine disciples. They remain. They persist in the truth. Now the devil is the very opposite of all that God stands for. The opposite of truth. It says here that there is no truth in him. It goes even farther. He's a liar and the father of lies. We do this thing when we sing this song. We've got this serpent's tongue. He's twisting things. He's twisting words of God. He loves to twist the truth. In fact, it defines him. It's the first thing we see of him in the garden. God says, Genesis 2, In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Speaking about the tree he had forbidden them to eat the fruit from. Or when you're looking at the Hebrew, dying, you will die is probably the the closest translation. In that day that you eat of it, you will start that process of dying and things will never be the same again. You're going to start to get wrinkles now. There's an end in sight to your mortal life. Dying, you will die. What does Satan say in Genesis 3? His words to Eve, you will not surely die. Well, God... Tells us in his word, Genesis 5, 5, Adam lived 930 years and then he died. So who's the liar and the father of lies? The devil. He wants to steal and kill and destroy. In his jealousy, he wants to steal the majesty of God and all his glory. He wanted to kill Adam and Eve and all humanity because everywhere he turns... He sees these beautiful image bearers of God walking around. You're all beautiful. You're created in God's image. Each of you are uniquely crafted and you're reflecting God's creative power. And the devil can't bear it. Too much glory, too much God glory going on for him. So he wants to destroy all that is good because he's lost it forever and he can never have it back. It's too late for him and his demons. That's why the earth is under a curse. The devil is filled with fury because he's been thrown down to the earth and the sea and he knows his time is short. It tells us in Revelations 12. But Jesus tells the truth and he demands that his followers repeat that truth by their words and by their actions. 
Verse 45, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So how can anyone come to believe God if they are children of the devil and they can't hear the word? It's a question worth asking. The answer comes back to us from chapter 6, verse 44. God must draw them. It says, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. God does that work. This was hard for the Jews to accept, but it's instructive to us because it means that no one could become prideful of coming to Christ. This is really no different from today. People hear a sermon. They decide, do I like what was said? Eh. Do they, do they say, I, I can deal with that? I like a Jesus who will pat me on the back, make me feel better about myself. I like a Jesus who doesn't insist that I talk with Him, talk about Him when I go to work. I'll come to Jesus on my own terms. And I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to stand out too much. And I understand we have different gifts. We have different levels of comfort. But what are we willing to do? Or do we come to Jesus saying, I'm too dirty, too sinful to come right now. I'll make some changes in my life. And when I get myself straightened up a little more, I'll try to be a little, I'll try a little more Jesus. And it doesn't work like that. It's not biblical. You cannot earn your way to God. In fact, Paul tells us not only are those who are earning, trying to earn their way to God unable to do it, they're falling short, but they're actually under a curse. Galatians 3. They're under a curse if you rely on the law to find righteousness because you can't do it. Paul says it also in Romans 3. No one will be declared righteous by doing the works of the law. So God draws a person to himself, and when he draws them, his sheep hear his voice, and they'll believe. That was on the third step. Okay? And I'm going to recap in case you missed it. The first step, some of the Jews believed in God. They started out well. Second step down, they insisted that they never were slaves. The third step down, their weak faith turns to unbelief. They reject Jesus as God. And then the fourth step, This is actually from the text starting in verse 48, which is beyond our text today. But you've got to hear what comes at the end of the downward progression. Step four is that they do the killing work of their father by trying to stone him. Verse 44, they are not holding to the truth. Remember verse 31, if you hold on to my teaching, hold on. They will not hold on to his teaching. They will not hold on to his truth that the Son is God himself. Now we learn from Hebrews 3 that it's it's possible to be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. But verse 14, this is the encouraging part. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. In that next section that's beyond our text, Jesus tells them they don't even know who Abraham was because Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing the day Jesus would come to earth. And they say, wait a minute, you saw him rejoice, Jesus? 
They say, newsflash, Jesus, you're not even 50 years old. And Jesus responds, that's right, I saw him rejoice. Because I was there when it happened. And I was there before Abraham. Before he ever saw the light of day. Before Abraham was, I am, he said. And at the very moment that they pick up stones to kill him, they prove that they are just like their father, the devil. The one who comes to steal and kill and destroy. The devil is a liar and the father of lies, and they're lying right along with him.